This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. This is the last of our week of Oscar lead up episodes. We have lots of fun stuff safe for today. I'll be talking to Rebecca Keegan, who has joined Vanity Fair this year as our Hollywood correspondent, but has spent time backstage at the Oscars in years past and will tell us about what that's like. And then Richard and I had a conversation with Kevin O'Connell, the sound recording mixer who has been nominated for 21 Oscars and has never won and has some nice perspective on all of that. And we'll also have our predictions for who will win Best Director and Best Picture. So now we're joined once again by Rebecca Keegan, our Hollywood correspondent, who, as we speak, is already in the thick of the Oscars, even though they're still days away. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking a break from the Dolby Theater to join us. Oh, God, I'm happy to be here. This is the first year you've been covering the Oscars for us. But in the past for the LA Times, you've not only covered the rehearsals, which you're in the thick of now, but also been backstage at the Oscars. So, I mean, at this point, I know this episode is coming out on Friday. The rehearsals are underway. What's the mood like typically at this point? This is the point in the week where the entire crew is running around complaining about everything and (laughs) they're convinced that nothing will work and the show will be 17 hours long and the sets are going to fall down. There is generally like at this point in the week, it's kind of freak out stage, which is enjoyable to be honest. (laughs) And somehow, somehow magically the show all comes together right now. If you walk into the Dolby theater, they have the sets, which are designed by Derek McLean, who's done them the last few years. It's sort of like a beautiful art deco, almost looks a little bit like Metropolis kind of set. And they have the placards in the seats where everybody will sit with a giant picture. So you can see like there's Meryl Streep in the spot formerly occupied by Jack Nicholson and Ryan Gosling's got, yes, she's the new Jack and Ryan Gosling's up there in the front row providing this sort of hot young thing. Is Emma in the front row? Yes, they're, Uh, Without revealing too much, yes, they both have excellent seats. Mm, I would expect as much. Now, does that mood of, you know, kind of frantic, I'm thinking back to college theater days, does that carry into (laughs) the actual Sunday night or by Sunday to have they found a sense of composure usually? It's kind of scary to think about them just going live on television where they're like, can we pull this off? (laughs) What I've learned is the, the entire crew, and I think Kimmel is like this as well, likes to set incredibly low expectations so that Sunday night when they pull things off smoothly as they do, it's all very impressive. The truth is most of the people who are the stage managers and the people walking around with the headsets who keep it all running, the camera crew, they've done this a bajillion times. They do it for the Grammys. They do it for the Emmys. They're no strangers to live TV. I think they just enjoy kind of, as you say, that high school theater hand-wringing vibe. So in the interview you had with Jimmy Kimmel, he kind of talked about how his experience with live TV is really giving him a huge boost here. And I honestly hadn't thought about it. And now it makes perfect sense. It gave me confidence that Kimmel will kind of roll with the vibe of things more than maybe a Neil Patrick Harris would, who isn't as used to it. I mean, do you have a lot of confidence in him at this point? 
Yeah, I, I do think that that is harder than people realize. I mean, to react spontaneously in the moment to someone's speech, for instance, which I thought Kimmel did really well at the Emmys. Not everybody can do it. I mean, Neil Patrick Harris had rehearsed. He was ready with his song and dance numbers and his bits. But when things would happen, um, like I forget, I think it was a documentary speech where a woman had this very sort of somber comment about the loss of her son to suicide. And then Neil Patrick Harris came out and did like a goofy joke about her dress it was sort of clear that he wasn't really listening, which is understandable, but it's also something you have to do on live TV. You have to be attuned to every moment. You can't just be looking at the teleprompter and thinking about your song and dance numbers that you've got prepped. And on that note, uh, Jimmy Kimmel told you that he's probably not going to be doing any song and dance numbers, which I guess isn't a surprise, but I'm a, I'm a little disappointed. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good to know yourself when it comes to <laughs> entertainment. He he knows he's not Hugh Jackman, and no one really wants to see him try to sing, so he's not going to do it. And also, I think, you know, Jimmy Fallon did a pretty good opening number at the Golden Globes that featured La La Land. So there's sort of a, somebody's been there and done that, so let's go a different way feeling. Did you get any sense from Kimmel about the political tenor of the evening, or is that kind of being kept under wraps, like whether or not they're going to go that way? I think he's he's definitely going to touch on it. I mean, as he said to me, you can't not right now because it's what everybody in America is talking about. So yeah. you just sort of seem clueless and out of it if you avoided the topic entirely. And he doesn't feel, he said, any kind of obligation to either take sides or be really even handed. He He tends to sort of approach politics from the standpoint of what is funny. And he'll let the people accepting speeches who have strong feelings about the Trump administration handle what is right, he'll tackle what's going to make you laugh. Yeah, I kind of really thinking about it, I don't think politics is going to be out of the Oscars in any way. And I kind of would rather hear it from Meryl Streep or the best documentary short winners or someone like that than having Kimmel kind of have like a pre-planned bit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What's he going to say that we haven't seen on a million late night monologues at this point either? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I guess it carries more weight when someone uses their moment on stage as a winner of this big award to say something, you know, kind of outside of themselves. But like the move would suggest based on past award shows this season that some winners will say things, right? I think that's inevitable. I mean, look, we're heading into an Oscar week where UTA canceled its party to hold a rally on Friday. Oh, yeah. I mean, the town the town is energized. Um, there are many people who are upset about Oscar Farhadi, the nominee for the salesman, not coming in part because he's protesting the Muslim ban. There are a lot of people who empathize with him and have had their doubts about whether to come themselves. So I think, yeah, people are going to be talking about it for sure. So let's cut to Oscar night where uh, you've been backstage several times before. Are you like a fly on the wall pressed up against the brick with all of the stagehand ropes? What's the scene like when people are just coming off stage with their new Oscar in hand? It's bananas and euphoric and crowded. It tends to be like the sort of like A-list traffic jam. I mean, last year, I remember Lady Gaga was barefoot, sort of hopping on her heels, singing to prepare before she went on stage as winners were coming back just completely elated. It's interesting because, you know, they... They win, and most of them are sort of in this weird kind of dream state the second they step behind the curtain. Oftentimes, they get handed their winning envelope from whoever their presenter was. Sometimes they really just almost seem like they're near fainting. I remember the year <laughs> Natalie Portman won for Black Swan. She was extremely pregnant, and Steven Spielberg happened to be 
right there waiting to present. And he basically caught her uh, <laughs> as she as she came back, and he and he pushed a stagehand to get her a chair because here she she had, you know, sort of just made it through this moment of so much anxiety and excitement, and she. She really just needed a drink of water and a place to sit. But there's also still a photographer. I mean, you're back there. You're kind of reporting. But there's aren't they having their photos taken there, too? Like, they're off stage, but they're still kind of on. It's interesting how completely unaware of that they seem. I think it's partly because these aren't staged photos. There are still photographers who capture them as they're walking back. But one of the things that's fun about it is they are still in the moment. And they are still really kind of authentically reacting. By the time they walk the long hallway to the press room, Mm. they kind of remember, oh, shoot, you know, the world is watching. There are journalists here. I better get it together. But in the stage right wings, when they first come back, they have not yet collected themselves, which is why it's kind of fun. Yeah. You've also said that the green room back there is the nicest green room of all time. It's amazing. I would like to move in. It's gorgeous. (laughs) I mean, every year they've got some fancy pants sponsor. I think this year it's Rolex. Obviously, they have booze to sort of get people relaxed. They have a screen playing the show. And they have just beautiful decor and art and flowers. And it is where people tend to gather to just sort of collect themselves before they go out to present or perform. I remember last year, Chrissy Teigen, like, holding court in there and many, many women passing through and just enjoying schmoozing with her and hanging out with her. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because in this the FX series Feud, there, there's an episode where they're at the Oscars and Joan Crawford kind of brought in all this booze and turned into a party and the stagehand says, Miss Crawford, you can't do this. So I guess it's still that tradition continues of Chrissy Teigen is kind of just hanging out and creating a little party back there. There, the Joan fun. Crawford of our time. I think well, we sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. We, we, it, clearly. Yeah. clearly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I remember reading about the old Oscars when it was more of a sort of small dinner party mm-hmm. and they would have like giant ice buckets with a bottle of scotch and a bottle of vodka and a bo- they would just have tons of booze right there at the table. Now these people are sitting in a theater with bright lights on them. They don't get food unless, you know, as Ellen DeGeneres did, somebody gets them pizzas or something during the show. So the the green room is the one place where they can get a little bit of a snack and something to sort of sustain them because it is a long night. And it's funny, I after doing this so many years, bring my own snacks and kind of hide them backstage. And <laughs> one one year, Jennifer Lopez stole my entire bag of trail mix, which <gasps> I thought was really cheeky. But she was starving and she saw this like Ziploc baggie with trail mix right there. And she just snatched it and started eating. And these these giant security guards who are off-duty LAPD cops who are supposed to sort of keep everybody behaving themselves and safe back there. And the guy just made eye contact with me like, I'm not going to tell J-Lo not to take the trail mix. I was like, that's cool. I mean, a a safe assumption during Oscar week is that any given A-lister is hungrier than you are. That is fair. That is an excellent assumption. More more likely than La La Land winning Best Picture <laughs> is the fact that everyone is starving. Well, isn't the bar also famously the place to be during the broadcast? Like people can get up from their seats and take a break and not be, like you're saying, on camera at every moment? For sure. That's one of the places people let their hair down. And that's why my journalist colleagues who are covering the show from inside the show never sit in the Dolby. They stand at the bar with their notebook and try and sort of catch people's spontaneous reactions to just having lost or their authentic feelings. It's funny how much being on TV and knowing you're on camera really keeps those people from letting their hair down. I kind of feel bad for them. It would be nice if they could be able to just like laugh at a monologue joke without worrying that someone's going to make a gif out of it. 
Well, this is where, and we talked about the uh, Vanity Fair party yesterday, but when people actually finally get inside the Vanity Fair party, there's a red carpet to get in there, obviously. And then once you're finally inside the party, it's like actually over, which is where I think the party becomes fun is that these people right. are, like, can eat an In-N-Out burger and not count how many glasses of champagne they've had. Exactly. At that bar scene at the at the theater, is the hoi polloi, do they have access to this, the people up in the balcony seats, or is it kind of a special section for, you know, the bigger stars sitting down in the orchestra section? Well, remember that even the people up in the balcony seats are like agents from CAA. Right. Like, so it's, ho- yeah. hoi polloi is a relative term <laughs> at the Oscars. Um, so, yeah, they can, they can go there. But for the most part, you don't see a lot of people being sort of like rushed by admirers or treated the way they might in a different sort of environment. Everyone's kind of in their black tie best behavior. I mean, I would hope so. You yeah. know, you got one night of the year, you got to really keep it together at the Oscars. Keep thing, it together. Yeah. 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 Well, and you told me before that, um, you know, there's like a cynicism that comes with some of these award shows and like the Golden Globes are fun, but they're kind of silly. But at the Oscars, people really care. Like no one is too cynical to be at the Oscars. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's one of the things that's fun to watch is when I'm standing in that position by the monitors backstage, I'll see somebody like, say, Meryl Streep waiting to present, and you see how seriously she's taking it. She, for instance, hates teleprompters and hates reading, so she'll be sitting there memorizing what she plans to say before she goes out, and she'll, right before she steps out into the stage, she takes this sort of big inhale and, like, gathers herself and collects herself, and I think... It's a sign that even someone who's been there as many times as her, who's been nominated, what, 20 times and attended others, takes the evening very seriously, prepares for it. I don't know if she enjoys it, but she clearly sees it as important. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, these are show people, you know, yeah. and they, you know, when they're on stage, that should be taken seriously. And it certainly shows with Meryl. She always seems to be very composed and sort of her own entity. She's not dry reading from a, you know. Well, and when you say she hates reading and hates teleprompters, that's something she and Donald Trump have in common. Hey, there you go. <laughs> that's a good point. They found some I common never thought about Finally, that. some that commonality. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of winners, losers, I, I know that you've been busy kind of doing the backstage reporting and talking to Kimmel and stuff, but any kind of whispers on the wind on that front in terms of the voting now that it's done and or do things kind of seem status quo as they were last week, say? Well, it's interesting. There's been a lot of anti-La La Land talk, mm. which is always, I think, when there's a front runner, there's always this sort of, it's not as great as people said it was at Telluride talk. It did seem to crest in the last couple of weeks. I mean, I just, a lot of people saying, hey, there are no Fred and Ginger. Now, whether that manifests itself in, in that movie, not winning as many Oscars as we all think it will, I don't know. It's sometimes hard to tell what's sort of like, a few kind of grumpy people airing their opinions versus a consensus across a group of some 6,000 voters. Yeah, at this point, you almost get people kind of whipping up a backlash just to entertain themselves because there's exactly. been so much talk about La La Land, like since Richard saw it at Telluride. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to a certain extent, people are trying to keep it interesting for themselves. But I do think it was sort of noteworthy that you saw some people like Mark Duplass coming out and saying, you know, really, let's give Moonlight Best Picture. There have been sort of other prominent people. Uh, Justin Chang, the critic at the L.A. Times, wrote a, a beautiful piece also making the case for Moonlight. So I think you saw some other people saying, hey, we know this isn't the favorite, but keep Moonlight in mind when you're making that Best Picture decision, Academy members. I mean, I always root for surprises at this point, and I would be delighted by that just as something surprising coming in there because Moonlight's a great movie. 
And I remember things like last year when it seemed like Sylvester Stallone was marching inevitably toward his Oscar, uh, and then Mark Rylance ended up winning it. There's always stuff that's sort of burbling that as much as we all try and keep our fingers on the pulse of this, you end up surprised. I mean, thank goodness you end up surprised usually by one or two categories on Oscar night. I feel like there might be a couple. I, yeah, I'm. I'm what do you think? What do you? What uh, do you think? I think that I I'm sort of thinking there's going to be a, a best actor upset. I think Denzel could win. I wrote our best actor yes. predictions for our predictions that are already live, and I went with Casey. And I just there's that thing where you know that like no matter which one you choose, the other one's going to happen. Yeah, right. Which is yeah, how I feel. And then I think I don't know. I think unfortunately, Mahershala Ali could be in a little trouble. <sighs> I but, I have a really hard time buying that one. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. Who knows? Yeah, no, I, I, there's a possibility of that. And I mean, I remember at the Golden Globes, there were audible gasps when he did not win the Golden Globe. I mean, rarely in those rooms are people reacting audibly to an upset. Yeah, that one was truly wild because that was Aaron Taylor Johnson who was in nominated. Exactly, yeah, it was totally bonkers. But as beloved and rightfully so as Mahershala is, there are still some people who have not seen Moonlight or among a certain group of Academy members don't consider it like a movie for them. So it could happen. I think that would be a shame. It's I mean, his sort of arc has been one of the more enjoyable ones to watch during award season. And certainly from the standpoint of someone coming out to represent a film and sort of introducing himself to Hollywood, he's really done that beautifully. Yeah. And who doesn't want to see him make another speech like he did at the SAGs where he talked about his mother, who's a pastor and he's Muslim. Like, you know, he's, I know, he's kind I of what my, we need. <laughs> I'm holding out hope for him being one of the great speeches, although it would be hard to top that one. I mean, he really used his time while there. So it it would be tricky to say something more beautifully uh, than that on the Oscar stage. Rebecca, do you see any vulnerabilities in other kind of prescribed categories that we sort of assume are going to go one way, but could maybe make a late break for a different direction? Well, it's interesting. People seem to think that La La Land is going to win an original song for City of Stars, which is definitely, you know, the song that Lionsgate has told everybody it's backing. But they do have two songs that could be going up against each other. And mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, Lionsgate has said, hey, City of Stars is the one, doesn't mean every Academy voter sprinkled all over the world necessarily got that memo. So if they split, I could see Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's very well liked in Hollywood. And, and every time I've seen him at events like the Governor's Awards, the town is just going gaga for him. I could see him for sure winning for Moana. Yeah, I'd be. And then be he would be the EGOT. Yeah, yeah right? then I think he gets his EGOT just from that. Yes, yeah. Possibly that could be a fun moment. I mean, that's always fun to watch. I, I, I should look up if he'll be the youngest EGOT ever. I kind of gave up on the idea that it was going to happen. Is Robert Lopez younger than him? Oh, maybe. Yeah. Because didn't he EGOT with uh, Frozen? Well, clearly uh, in next week's uh, Oscar recap episode, maybe we have some stats <laughs> yeah. to pull yeah. out. They're both way too young and way too talented. Exactly. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, Damien Chazelle, I already just like get in the sweats every time I think about his career and <laughs> where we are. And the entire experience that you have of being there for the Oscars and, you know, now you're throwing the Vanity Fair party on it. What do you look forward to and what feels just like work? I think definitely watching the original song performers rehearse is fun and exciting I mean, in the years past, it's been people like Adele working out their beats or or, or people like James Taylor. That's incredibly fun. What's work is, gosh, what is work? Well, I mean, sadly, we have to actually write about all these things. And at some point, stop (laughs) partying and sit down at a laptop and start typing. And that is always like, oh, right, this is why I get paid for this. Right. So that that part is hard, especially if you've been kind of running on a mixture of adrenaline, trail mix, and champagne. Well, trail mix if it doesn't Yeah, protect your trail mix this year. <laughs> yes, I, will, I have a padlock on it. 
Before we jump to our interview with Kevin O'Connell, Oscar nominee and sound re-recording mixer, I want to talk real quickly to Richard about a pretty ambitious and fun project that he's done for VF.com. Okay, Richard, as has become the tradition, and I don't remember how this started. I think it was your idea to start recapping Oscars of the past. Kind of terrible, kind of great idea. (laughs) So you've been, uh, you have on DVD the 1997 Oscars. Well, yes. So friend of the podcast, Joe Reed, uh, Mm -hmm. has a full collection of videotaped, then converted to DVD, full broadcasts of the Oscars. I think they dating back to the early 90s. So I I decided to do it 20 years. So watching the Oscars that were broadcast in 1997 for the movies of 1996. There is some debate among Joe, especially like in in the headline. I tend to call it, you know, recapping the 1997 Oscars. I know, but he they are the 1996 Oscars. Yeah, so but I I, it's confusing to the layperson. I think if, I know. know it's a confusing. They're like, thing. Well, that wasn't 20 years ago. That was 21 years. I ago. I think you know? Google has uh, has kind of settled this. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, the 1997 Oscars was yeah. the English Patient. It was uh, yeah. Getting Junior. Yeah, it's an interesting year. I think it was when I first. I mean, I was cognizant of the Oscars, but I was about 13, mm-hmm. so I was really reading Entertainment Weekly a lot. So so I, I really do remember a lot of the kind of debate surrounding this particular Oscars. And the big one was, and Billy Crystal, who hosted after a few year absence, a lot of jokes devoted to the fact that it was a ton of indie movies. Mm-hmm. It was Secrets and Lies. It was English Patient. It was Shine, Shine, Fargo, Fargo, you know, and he made the point that, you know, out of 163 studio releases, only one was nominated for Best Picture, which was Jerry Maguire. Yeah. The other four were independent. And at that time, that was a huge shift now it's more of a mix you know i mean now it's probably more independent movies regularly but we're sort of more used to that now yeah and larger studios have started subsidiary companies that you know produce independent films so it's an interesting kind of moment in time in that regard and i always like when i watch these things you know couples that were still together quentin tarantino and mira sorvino tom cruise mm-hmm. and and Nicole kidman susan Sarandon and tim robbins uh-huh. there, oh yeah they were staples yeah yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's been fun. And, you know, seeing Tom Cruise in the audience, I, he doesn't go to the Oscars that often that I can think of. Well, you know? the Oscars have famously not been that great to him. Yeah. Starting this, yeah. Or not starting this year, but including this year when he maybe should have won Best Actor yeah. and didn't. He's been in years past, but it just, you know, seeing him, you know, he's up for a big movie. It was a big hit. His performance in it is fantastic. You know, there was probably not a great chance that he would win. But anyway, the, the camera favors him a lot. So yeah. it cuts to him a lot. He's a very eager participant in the show. He's laughing big at every joke he's clapping effusively it sometimes doesn't seem entirely sincere to be honest oh but I, uh, shockingly Tom Cruise. <laughs> i know i know and another interesting narrative of the night that well could have some bearing on this year but i don't know but lauren bacall was who was nominated for the mirror house two faces mm-hmm. her first oscar nomination ever she was in her 70s yeah. for the barbara streisand movie she won the Golden Globe, she won the SAG, and then Juliette Binoche came out of nowhere and won Best Supporting Actress. Mm-hmm. And it was this big thing because Lauren Bacall is interviewed in the Barbara Walters special beforehand, which is also on this DVD, which is great. Oh my god, great. that's the that's um, the real gem, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I took some gifs. Cause, so most of the screenshots on the post, which is now up on VF.com, are from this very grainy um, mm-hmm. DVD, but Oscars, their YouTube channel has a lot of clips which are better quality. Mm. So I was able to pull gifs from there. Yeah. Of, you know, Bacall's several different faces throughout. <laughs> the Bacall has being, two faces. <laughs> being announced. Then you see her lose. And then Juliette Binoche up on stage says, I thought Lauren was going to get it. And I'm like, okay, I know she was trying to be gracious, but it's like, that's not a nice thing to say because it just really <laughs> it reminds everybody. Yeah. But yeah, it's a fun, it's a fun show. Uh, Did it seem like the Oscars were more fun back then? Or uh... I don't know. I mean, one of the funny things about watching the, 
And this is not to at all diminish what we do, because what we do is very much in the present. But watching something from a long time ago, you're like, oh, none of this really, you know, it all feels a little slight in a way. (laughs) I mean, the big wins do, obviously, but the kind of silly performances of the songs and all Mm -hmm. this stuff, you know, at the moment, it's really exciting. So it's worth it for that. But looking back at it, you kind of realize, oh, this just happens every year. And, you know, and some (laughs) there are some memorable moments and there are many that aren't. Well, my guess is it was a pretty apolitical show. Like this is in the middle of the Clinton years. Like this is before the women's Uh, It was before Lynn. Yeah. So Crystal made a couple political jokes that I didn't even understand. Like, honestly, like (laughs) it would have been right after the election. So it would have just been real life. He was making jokes about like a fundraising, Democratic fundraising and stuff. And I'm sure there was some question about that. (laughs) But it just feels so inconsequential that you're just like, and, you know, it makes you feel like these halcyon days. Like, oh, my God, like the easy, you know, Clinton just reelected. Yeah, it makes you think that like this year's Oscars, like regardless of what actually happens, will be a time capsule for people to be like, oh, yeah, God, we were pissed back then. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I think that um, if I continue doing this project, this labor intensive, but I think ultimately rewarding project going forward. Um, and look, it, it is mostly it's mostly silly. It's not I'm, yeah. it's not a serious post, but it'll be really interesting to see as they tiptoe toward the Bush years, you know, mm-hmm. because and then then everything goes kind of topsy turvy for a little while. Well, yeah, I mean, you're still a ways from Michael Moore getting booed for Fahrenheit 9-11. Yeah, I'm, but, I'm a uh, few years away from that. But yeah. next year is going to be thrilling because of Titanic. Oh, my God. I'm you know? already excited. Rewatching for it. that Oscars, I think, will be really exciting. Um, this one is a kind of a little bit more of a recessive year. It's just, you know. It's hard to get really like worked up about secrets and lies jokes. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, sure. Billy Crystal does a song, but like a medley, but it's like, again, it's about these independent movies. And you can tell from the audience reaction, they laugh a lot at the Jerry Maguire so- song. Oh, because they've they don't laugh seen as it. much at the Shine song because yeah. they're not. I think a lot of people hadn't seen these movies, and that was the big panic. Now people know to go see those movies because you know they know yeah. to go see moonlight hopefully or whatever oh in the industry or yeah, i just i don't i don't think people in the room really got the jokes because i think a lot of people hadn't seen the movie they were like oh well, the nominee is going to be whatever the studio well i looked you know i looked it up and and just curious about what big studio movies didn't get included mm-hmm. and it's you know stuff like vita it's stuff mm-hmm. like sleepers which yeah. was just really star-studded brad pitt you know everybody was robert de niro kevin bacon dustin hoffman michael collins the neil jordan directed liam neeson movie Ooh. with a supporting performance from julia roberts Romeo and Juliet, I think, potentially was maybe an Oscar hope. Yeah, so it was a real sea change year. And um, the kind of little trills of panic that run throughout the jokes about it are interesting. (laughs) And and it's like, you know, I think it all, well, it all worked out okay for the Oscars. But, you know, the industry itself has shifted. And now we'll share the conversation that Richard and I had with Kevin O'Connell, the 21-time Oscar-nominated sound re-recording mixer who was nominated this year for Hacksaw Ridge. Hello. Hi, is this Kevin? Yes, it is. Hi, this is Katie, and I'm, I'm here with Richard. We're the host of the podcast. Hi, Kevin. Oh, hey. Hi, guys. How are you? Good. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's got to be a busy week for you. Um, you know, it is a busy week, but it's a fun week as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're talking to you because you have such a long track record with the Oscars, but I just realized this is your first nomination in almost a decade, so it must be really exciting to get back in this whole circus. You know, in the words of Foreigner, it feels like the first time for me because... <laughs> You know, I think I'm a little older now and a little wiser now. And I kind of realize, not that I took the Oscar nominations for granted in the past, but, you know, giving you 10 years to think about it gives you a, a moment of pause. And then when it happened again, I was just 
thoroughly elated. I can only imagine. So we wanted to start the conversation kind of before we get into the Oscars, because I can't imagine we're the only people who do this every year. We look at sound editing and sound mixing and really have to remind ourselves of the difference. And we figured who better to ask than you, an expert. Do you have like a rule of thumb, like two sentence explanation of the difference between the two categories? Yeah, I mean, here's the deal. If you believe that the dinosaurs roared and trampled around Jurassic Park, <laughs> if you believe that, you know, an 18-wheeler transformed into a 40-foot-tall uh, robot named Optimus Prime, then you begin to understand what sound effect editing is. A better term for that might be sound effect design. They are the guys who design all of the sounds for the visuals that you see. In other words, the Titanic breaking in half, they didn't actually go out and record a Titanic breaking in half. Somebody cleverly put together all those sounds to make you believe that the Titanic broke in half. If I relate that to Hacksaw Ridge, all of the battle scenes in Hacksaw Ridge were, were basically shot without sound because 90% of the track that they shot on production was unusable. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's, it's basically a bunch of guys running around what amounts to a football field with smoke on it, uh, dodging fake explosions and shooting uh, not real guns. And the sound editors are the ones that supplied all of that information that made you believe you're on that battlefield. That's not your department, though. You're on the mixing side of that, things. Well, that's sound editing, right? Yeah. That's, those are the guys who design and create the sound. Then all of those sounds that we just talked about, along with all of the music, you know, and the music isn't just the score. The music is the score broken down into orchestra, percussion, synth, brass, woodwinds, choir, etc. And then all of the dialogue, every character in the movie's dialogue, we have all of those sounds on a mixing console and independent control over every one of them. And much like a cinematographer racks focus on a scene to direct you at what to look at, we do the exact same thing with sound. When Desmond Doss steps onto that battlefield, the battle is raging and it's out of control, and you hear nothing but explosions, gunshots, ricochets, cannon fire, and then we cut into a foxhole, and now we need to hear them speaking. So all of that now information has to become background. All of these sound effects have to become background sound effects, and we have to pump up the level of their dialogue so you can understand what they're saying. And then a few minutes later, we introduce music into the piece, and then it takes on a whole new layer. And so the sound mixing is where all three elements of the motion picture come together. We sit in a room with the director, the film editor, the other sound editors, the music editor and composer, and we carefully blend the sounds so that if you are on that battlefield, you feel like you're on that battlefield. And we carefully stitch together the soundtrack for the audience. It was described to me that the sound editors kind of provide the ingredients and then the sound mixer is sort of the chef that prepares the meal. Is that an accurate uh, way to sum it up? Kind of. That's a a much more simplified way of saying what I just said. (laughs) But, uh, you know, but listen, you know, I think to the average audience, they don't understand that Transformers you know, Millennium Falcons and, uh, you know, battle scenes, they don't exist. You know, the actors really weren't running around a battlefield. Right. There is no sound of a transformer or uh, or a dinosaur roaring. That all has to be created. So you've had a really varied career. You've been nominated for things as far ranging as Terms of Endearment and Transformers, Apocalypto and Memoirs of a Geisha. This year you're nominated for Hacksaw Ridge. You've really worked in a lot of different genres. Is there one genre of film that provides an especial challenge or it's all challenging in their own way? Well, they all they all have different challenges. As you can imagine, a film like... Uh, Transformers, you know, you've got an incredible amount of sound effects going on, which are the sound of the Transformers doing their business and transforming 
and yet at the same time they're speaking. We have to understand them, and then music plays an emotional role in that. And then a battle sequence, obviously, like Hacksaw Ridge, is extremely challenging because you know you have to guide the audience through every stitch of that battle, completely, uh, you know, shifting focus from when it's an intense battle scene to when it's an emotional scene to when we really need to understand the dialogue. So you're you're completely you know, manipulating the audience through the use of the sound. And then musicals tend to have their own uh, set of challenges. You know, musicals are really about blending the uh, the actor's original track that they're recorded while they're on the set with their recorded vocal track that then becomes when they start singing, they sort of, you know, record those afterwards. And uh, but the, the mixing challenge on that is making that seamless transition and then making the song sound good. So is the challenge for people like us who, you know, aren't in the industry the way that you are, you know, if a movie is really well mixed in terms of its sound, it's almost like we wouldn't notice it. Like, is there something to help me notice when something is really well balanced in terms of its sound? Well, listen, you know, it, you're exactly right. If we've done our job right, it's seamless. If you believe that you were following Andrew Garfield and Luke Bracey across that battlefield while they, you know, took enemy fire from the Japanese soldiers, then you understand that, that that's what we do is to try to put you in that environment and make you believe that what you are seeing is 100% real. In Hacksaw Ridge, when they cut to the, uh, you know, the Navy ships firing their cannons, none of that existed. Those ships are all visual effects, so they, they don't really exist. So what tells you is the visual compounded with the sound. And so if we've done our job right, those cannons are big, they're bold, but they have a lot of bottom end and shake. they shake the theater when they fire. But then when we cut to a distant shot of the warship, they're firing much more gentler because obviously we have to shape that perspective into what we do with sound so that you believe now we've switched perspective. So if you think about every single shot in a movie, every single time there's a picture cut, there's a perspective change, and we have to adjust the sound accordingly for those perspective changes. So how did you wind up in this side of sound editing, or how did you wind up in sound at all? What brought you here? Well, in sound mixing... um, when I was uh, 18 years old, I was an L.A. County firefighter. I lived at home with my parents. My mother, Skippy O'Connell, worked at 20th Century Fox in the sound department. She worked there for like 27 years. And I would come home from a fire down uh, you know, in L.A. County, <clears throat> and I was very beat up and battered and burnt, basically, because those fires kicked your butt. My mom says, you know, I'd much rather see you get a job at the sound department why don't you go down and check it out, <laughs> which I did. And in, uh, in the fall of uh, 1977, I went down to uh, Samuel Goldwyn Studios. It looked like a cool opportunity. So I said, yes, I'd, I'd like to do this. I began at the studios in January of 1978 as an apprentice. I got to work on great films like Grease, Animal House, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Empire Strikes Back. And at that moment, I was hooked in and I realized that this is, this is really what I want to sink my teeth into uh, for a career. When you're working on movies like that, I mean, and when you're doing sound mixing, you're so focused on the details. But do you know when you're working on a movie that's great? Like, can you feel it coming together when you're in the room? Or do you have to wait until you go to the premiere and see it all put together if you know you've got something good? Generally speaking, you you kind of know what when you've got something special. And uh, and, and when it, in terms of Hacksaw Ridge, I, I knew that from the second I met with Bill Mechanic and he told me the story of this American hero, Desmond Doss. And uh, the, the, the fact that they were trying to tell the story for 13 years and were unable to get it together. And finally, he was able to put it together with Mel directing it. 
and that it was a hundred million dollar movie uh, that, but they only had a forty million dollar budget, so they you know had to cut everywhere they could to try to get the movie made. Uh, but once I heard about the story, I knew that it was going to be a special film. And then obviously, once I saw the footage with Andrew Garfield portraying Desmond Doss, uh, I thought I think it's one of the most profound uh, movies I've ever worked on. And you've worked with Mel Gibson a couple of times before. So is that director relationship important, too, and in, in having a job succeed? Well, absolutely. You know, I worked with Mel on The, the Passion of the Christ and then a few years later on Apocalypto. And, uh, you know, I've seen Mel, tra- Mel transition uh, through some, some difficult times in his life uh, as well. And, uh, you know, working with Mel is, is, is an honor for me. He is, uh, I've never seen uh, Mel more calm, cool, and collected than I've seen him uh, on this last film. He was just so together. He's such a, a, a fine human being and a fine spirit and a joy to be around. So you um, have been nominated for an Oscar 21 times. And I'm curious as to how your sort of time at the Oscars has evolved. I mean, you said, you know, just now that, you know, it's kind of like the first time all over again, because it's been, you know, it's been a few years since your last nomination. But is there anything that stands out to you in Oscar memory uh, as a particular highlight or unexpected thing? Well, you know, being nominated so young, I have kind of a unique perspective on it. Sure. Being nominated so many times. And, you know, I, I, I literally, you know, the first time I was nominated, I was 20, 23 or 24 years old. So I virtually grew up with it, and uh, you know, I went through the, I went through happy times, I went through sad times, I went through all sorts of difficult times. You know, my mother got me into the business, you know, was my champion for many years, and, and uh, you know, I, I waited a long time to be able to try to thank her for getting me the job, um, and, and I was going to do that if I ever won. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to do that before she passed away in 2007. But now I have children that uh, you know. Uh, were too young the last time I got nominated to understand, but now they're old enough to understand what it is. So, you know, it's, it's important to them to understand what's going on. I've let them know that, you know, that yes, this is something that I've been doing ever since I was 24 years old and I haven't won, but I'm never giving up. And, and I have a great attitude towards it so that they understand that uh, I don't take it in any kind of a negative way, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Have you gone to every show that you've been, I mean, every year you've been nominated, have you been gone to the actual ceremony? I've done it every which way you can. Absolutely. I've mm-hmm. gone to the ceremony every single year. Wow. Sometimes, uh, you know, I, I wasn't feeling great, so I left. And I would, I, I literally, after we lost the award, I, 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 I would, I, one time I went home and watched the rest of the show in my living room in my pajamas. <laughs> you know, I've done, I've done the show so many different ways. You know, sometimes I was, you know, when I was younger, I was so inebriated. It was a blessing that I didn't win because I would have <laughs> got up and made a myself. And, you know, I mean, I've really run the gamut of different ways to do the show. What advice would you give a first-time nominee this year? You know, someone who's going to be there, like, really sweating it out, trying to figure if they're going to win. What's the best way to survive it as a nominee? My first advice to them would be, uh, as I would say something kind of like, hey, listen, it's an honor just to be nominated. And then I'd wink at them. And they'd know <laughs> that I was thinking about that. I know, I'm kidding. Anyways, um, I listen, oftentimes people have come up to me at the Oscars whose uh, wives, husbands, lost, and they're very and they say, well, you go talk to him because, you you know, he, he was nominated once and he lost and he's heartbroken overnight. And he goes, but you just lost for the whatever it was, 18, 19, 20 times and you seem okay. And I said, that's because, you know, listen, this is a gift. We don't do this for Oscars. We do this because we love what we do. And the Oscars or being nominated is the icing on the cake. And I generally tell these guys not to be disappointed too much and to not lose hope and just 
working hard and, and hopefully that someday they'll achieve their dreams. Um, it's kind of a, a corny question, but you, you know, I have to ask since you've been to the Oscars so many times, is there any star encounter that you've had that has been particularly memorable or anyone that you hope to have this year? You know, there's a, a lot of uh, big names kind of nominated in all kinds of categories. Are you capable of being starstruck at this point or is it all kind of old hat? You know, as long as I've been doing this, I still get starstruck, but it's usually by, by the ones that you wouldn't expect. Like sure. I, I remember I was at one Oscar ceremony and, you know, it's very crowded. I'm working my way and I bumped right into Muhammad Ali. Whew. And Muhammad Ali, I looked right at him and I said, hey, hi there. And he smiled at me and he gave me like a boxing, you know, thumbs up with his fist. And I just said, hi, champ. And he smiled at me. And, and that was a very uh, cool experience. And then, uh, you know, years ago, I think Paul McCartney was performing a song and I got to uh, see Paul McCartney in person, which to me is was a huge thrill, you know. So, yes, I, I still do get a little starstruck when I see some of these folks. Yeah, I don't think anyone can blame you for getting starstruck by Muhammad Ali. That's, 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 that's a pretty a good, one. good yeah. one. Listen, it was so cool. He looked right at me and smiled and winked. It was great. Yeah. Well, we are going to be rooting for you this Sunday. And um, I think you've got a lot of great Oscar stories. So hopefully you just get to add to the stack that you have. Guys, thank you very much. Thanks. Kevin. I really appreciate it. And now we have our final batch of Oscar predictions for the week. All four of us talked about who will win Best Director and, of course, Best Picture. Does anyone think anything but La La Land will win? Um, I no. I mean, I don't. I, that would be. <laughs> that would. I mean, I would be genuinely shocked. Um, yeah. You know, I. I don't. I can't even really pick out the spoiler here. I think maybe Hidden Figures could. But that like, would be kind yeah. of my favorite. Spoiler, but and as we talked about last week, it's not necessarily the best movie, but just like the fun of it. And mm-hmm. you know, I want to see Taraji P. Henson accept an Oscar. Yeah, right. People yeah. love it. People love it. Yeah. Um, but so. that's a dim, dim possible. Yeah, I don't think Hex. For a while, I kind of thought Hexal Ridge was making its way and it was going to yeah. American Sniper its way through, but it didn't do that well. I mean, American Sniper was the number one movie of its year. Hexal Ridge did fine, but I don't think it's got enough steam behind it to jump in there. And nobody, nobody wants to feel. I mean, there is. It's uplifting at the end, I guess, but like it's miserable for a long stretch of it. You <laughs> it <know>? really is. <laughs> and then, I mean, we keep talking about Moonlight and Joanna. You were kind of FYCing for it last week, but I don't know, Joanna, as a believer in Moonlight, do you feel like it has a shot? No. <laughs> you guys have worn me down, but I want to believe. You know, wouldn't it be fun, though, if something other than La La Land won? Yeah, like, maybe. just, you know. And and is there a possibility of that given the new Academy class this year? Like, is a spoiler a, you know, higher probability because we've got a more unpredictable class? I know we've got these other predictors that we've been watching closely, but, you know, I, I was reading uh, Rebecca Keegan sort of talked to a lot of the new voters over on VFD com and you know it got me thinking about how fun it would be to have a truly unpredictable oscars even if it makes us look like idiots <laughs> oh sure i don't ever care if it makes us I, I always do it for surprise rather than being right in my predictions joanne are you are you wishing for chaos terrain i mean are you some sort of anarchist <laughs> well actually but let's let's think about this for one second because i think i remember how best picture voting works it's a little complicated basically they start Cutting off the ones that get the least number of votes at number one mm-hmm. have their second place votes reallocated as as number one. Unless there's a clear winner the first time around. Right. And so but somehow you got to get to the place where there is a what is it? It's got to be a certain percentage point anyway. Yeah. So number two and number three and even number four votes help. I think that's why La La Land is probably unbeatable because everybody's going to have it in their top 
You know yeah. what I mean? It's right. just hard to imagine. Yeah. There's just so many. Actually, there's a lot of options this year. I, I, you know, Manchester Moonlight were always kind of floating there as like the indie faves. Hidden Figures in a way probably hurts Moonlight. Because it's taking away from the sort of, you know, there's the, some people the, are going to be like, oh, let me go narrative. for the more conventional multicultural film. So I yeah, don't know. I think rebuke to the whiteness of the Oscars yeah. that we've talked about plenty of times. I mean, I, I do think that it's a cliche, but it really is an honor for Moonlight to be nominated. I think it says a yeah. lot for that film and for A24 campaigning it and for whatever extent to which the Oscars have embraced diversity. Like that is not in any way a typical Oscar movie. And I'm really thrilled to see it in the race yeah. to the extent that it is mm-hmm. at all. And that's what we've been saying from the beginning. And then, yeah. you know, La La Land just went and kind of cruised through it. But that's why I can't really imagine a Hacksaw Ridge because I could I could see a lot of people putting it at number one. I could also see a lot of people putting it really way down. Mm-hmm. It's a little more divisive mm-hmm. that yeah. way. Given, you know, those voting rules, I think Katie is right. You know, that, that Hidden Figures is the best potential spoiler. I can see a lot of people putting it at one or two, you know, and um, that's fascinating. <laughs> And, right. I, and I think it's I think to La La Land's credit, it, it's going to be in those two and three spots for a lot of that um, wide range of filmmakers and people you're talking about, Joanna. Like it is a movie that appeals to a ton of different people. And it's I mean, it's got this universal like language of a musical that's going to work on, on basically everybody. So and, you know, I met uh, Damien at the feud event two weeks ago and you know, the guy's good at a party. He's just a charming guy. And the other person who was meeting him at the time was the son of Adolph Green, the Comden and Green, you know, oh, sure, writer. Yeah. And he said, you know, my father wrote this one. And Damien was like, I know exactly who he is. And that's one of my favorite movies of all time. And, and you know, started going deep into mm-hmm. all the MGM musicals and everything. This dude is good. Mm-hmm. He's good. Yeah. You know, he's 31, but he like made a movie for these folks. He is a very charming young man who knows his shit. So I don't know. I think that he's probably won over a lot of people just on the straight retail politicking. Well, that brings us to the other category we're here to predict, which is best director. And, uh, you know, Hidden Figures, our choice for a spoiler, it's director Ted Melfi isn't nominated at all. I mean, you, yeah. is Damien almost more of a lock than La La Land at this point, even though he's a baby? No, I think that Best Picture is more of a lock. I think that Chazelle will almost certainly win, but director is sometimes less predictable. Yeah. You know, or oftentimes. That said, I don't know who amongst the other uh, nominees, Denis Villeneuve, Mel Gibson, Kenneth Lonergan, or Barry Jenkins, I don't know who spoils it there for him, you know? I mean, I think Barry Jenkins has the best like yeah. story to tell of all of them like if you don't want the young kid to win i mean barry jenkins isn't kind terribly of like Soderbergh old. winning for traffic but uh it didn't win best picture yeah but he'd split his own vote that was his right. problem moonlight had... feels like the clearest alternative to la la land here, that's kind of what i was thinking where it's like you know this is a artier film if la la land is really crowd pleasy as well as accomplished mm-hmm. moonlight is like is like not crowd pleasy. It's gonna make you come to it. Yeah, and but and it will it, make you it, feel a lot. You know, the, it's, it's yes. very engaging once you're in it. Yeah, yeah, and it addresses this kind of you know, there's some anxiety around like the white jazz movie. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar called out the race politics of La La Land. So for the uh, most unlikely negative Oscar campaigner, yeah. you can find go to him. I mean, I do remember only three people from the movie, and one of them is John Legend. But I, I, I also <laughs> recall, I suppose that DeWitt's there are there. a lot of white people. Yeah, that's right. For one Sorry. second. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, it's interesting that I read a headline yesterday that was something about like in praise of the unabashed exuberance of La La Land. And I was just like, am I remembering the movie differently? Because haven't we all 
agreed. Most of us agreed that it drags in the middle. And isn't the ending actually kind of a bummer? <laughs> you know, like, or bittersweet, I think is, is the word we're using. And so like, don't let the fact that they're singing and dancing and brightly colored dresses sort of fool you. I, I, I would not call La La Land sort of exuberant. I would call Hidden Figures more exuberant than La La Land. So, yeah, you know. What will you do if Mel Gibson wins? Like you, all of us personally. I believe I said it last week, <laughs> yeah. but I'm moving to Uruguay. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Montevideo. Yeah. yeah. I would just laugh my ass off. It would be hilarious. I mean, Joanna, you want chaos. So <laughs> Mel Gibson. That's the, yeah, that's the Trump vote of, uh, you know. No, that's the. Burn it all down. The think pieces connecting that to Trump will be so unbearable. I think we all have to yeah, go to Montevideo. That will, for that reason, I'll It'll be a Montevideo. repeat of the Super Bowl. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point, though. That's worth maybe pointing out on a cosmic level. This has been a year of bizarre last minute reversals and strange, unlikely outcomes in all of our big cultural competitions. Yeah. yeah. The Oscars are just I mean, this is why 538 cannot predict the Oscars like no one. Well, they didn't predict the election either. But like the Oscars <laughs> just work on a, on a rhythm that is not like anything else. I, uh, I there, There's going to be some surprises in here. I don't know what they're going to be. There always are. <laughs> and that does it for our week of pre-Oscars Little Gold Men episodes. Thank you for sticking with us this whole time. We'll be back on Monday with a post-Oscars wrap-up episode, so we're not going away just yet. And in the meantime, please keep reading VanityFair.com throughout the weekend and watch our live stream on VanityFair.com and on Facebook. You can find us all at Little Gold Men on Twitter and tweet at us during the Oscars themselves. We will maybe be working too frantically to read them at the time, but we'll read them eventually. This episode was edited and produced by Alana Milner, and thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.